Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Everyone, good night. I mean, good evening. I almost closed the show before I opened it. Yeah, look at that. Good evening, RFM. How are you doing, Mr. Real? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing exceptional. Just wanted to put something up on the screen really quick and just show some folks. We've been cleaning up the website a little bit. So, this is the landing page, mormondiscussions.org. You can see our great lineup of podcasts there. It's really cool. You've got the host down below. You can click a link and go to those. And so Emancipate Your Mind, which is one of the newer podcasts that we've added that I think is just fantastic. And by the way, I'm, I think I've, I'm really super lucky that all these podcasts we've added, I think are putting out incredible content. And I've seen that Radio Free Mormon's been putting out some stuff uh, again lately. I have been. I'm back in my traces, baby. Look at that. Radio Free Mormon. Why am the I second website's... on that list? That's what I want to know. What's that? Why am I second in that that display? Well, it goes by seniority. At least, at least early on, it did. <laughs> so you got Mormon discussions, Radio Free Mormon, and those two have never moved. And then we've had other ones that have gone away, like the Mormon History Podcast and almost, or not almost awakened, but uh, Mormon Awakenings with Jack Nanique. And so we replaced those squares um, and replaced whatever that one was. And Marriage on the Tightrope came on board. And so anyway, seniority. But you are you're you're second there, but you're first in our hearts. I'm number two, but I try harder. You try harder. There I you like go. The to, I like the shirt you have on tonight, Bill. Do you think you, you have it open enough at the collar? Man, it's just, if I go one more button, that's going to be a little like prude. You know, I'm going to be like a little nerd guy, you know? Yeah. So so we'll leave that one open. Let a little bit of chest hair just sprinkle out a little bit. Leave the ladies, leave the ladies uh, you know, wanting for more. And then we'll just go from there. I'll try not to get distracted. You, anyway, you're going to have a hard time. I, I am, actually. So I'll just try and focus on what I'm doing here tonight. Tonight's show is going to be great. Are you done with the opening announcements? Yeah, yeah. Just wanted to talk about that we're trying to update the websites and all the places, make things look a little different, and uh, people should go check it out. Oh, I do have to mention, I'm going to be in Utah this weekend and into yeah. early next week. And John DeLynn has been kind enough to host, uh, actually come up with the idea and host an event on Tuesday evening at 7 o'clock in some place called American Fork. Have you? Do you know where that is, Bill? It's in somewhere in northern part of Utah, right? Um, I, I, I don't even know that, but, uh, hopefully I'll be able to find my way and come up with something to say, but, uh, so for anybody who wants to go, I think there's information about that over at the, uh, what is it called? Uh, oh, Mormon stories, Mormon, Mormon stories, stories website. Yeah. Yeah. That up and coming podcast. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're just, they're just small peanuts in a big sea, you know, just little fish. Oh, that's quite an image. Thank you for that. So <laughs> anyway, so we'll be doing that. But tonight, very, very happy to have on Professor Thomas Murphy. He is an individual who's been doing Mormon-related studies as it relates to um, Native Americans. And he has been doing this for many, many years. He's written a number of articles, and I've been doing some homework on his articles. 
He's been kind enough to send them to me. There's one recently called Views from Turtle Island. Turtle Island, by the way, being um, an expression that was used by Native Americans for North America, I believe. So Turtle Island, when you hear that. Be before actually... Mormonism moved to Beaver Island. Gosh. James little, Strang. Little James Strang humor there. Thank there you. you. Yes. And then another one called Other Scriptures that he's written. And they have subtitles as well. But it all got started, at least as far as I know, back 20 years ago on a night just like tonight when two editors named Dan Vogel and Britt Metcalf. I never heard of those guys. Yeah, I think they're pretty <laughs> smart fellows. But this was 20 years ago when they had edited and produced their American Apocrypha volume. And in that volume... Professor Murphy has a paper, Lamanite Genesis, Genealogy, and Genetics, where he, well, he all but put the stake in the heart of the issue about there being no Middle Eastern slash Israelite DNA in America in Book of Mormon times. He got in some hot water over that. It became a cause celeb in the media, and he came that close to getting excommunicated. And my take on the story is probably that it was because it was getting such media coverage and it wasn't exactly positive toward the church that they backed off at the last minute. At least that's my recollection. I was going to have Dr. Murphy talk about that story tonight, but as it turned out, he has got so much research in his outline that we want to get to that we'll probably just let, leave it at that brief synopsis and bring Professor Murphy on if we can. Ta-da. Well, How are you doing? I'm doing doing well. I'm coming to you from the lands of the Coast Salish nations of Western Washington. Nice. Very nice. And by the way, I don't think I mentioned that you're a professor of anthropology at Edmonds College in Washington. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct. And have you been doing that? I mean, 20 years at least? Uh, about yeah. Yeah, more than that. Uh, at Edmonds, I've been 24 years. Wow. And I was at the University of Washington before that. Hmm. Okay, so we'll move up. <laughs> uh, <geographically laughs> anyway. No, anyway. Um, uh, so can you talk to us a little bit about what it is that we'll be talking about tonight? Because my understanding is because we have talked for hours actually now on the phone, maybe five, six hours all told. And it's very fascinating because what Professor Murphy has done is with his research into Native American legends stories and uh, accounts opened this brand new field into Mormon studies, which I had never before supposed existed. And it's been absolutely fascinating. So I'm very excited about tonight's show. And you've got an outline that covers some of the highlights of the research that you've been doing. Yeah, what I'd like to do is introduce what I'm calling a neophyte interpretive model for the Book of Mormon. So it's a it's a kind of a new way to look at the Book of Mormon, but look at it within the context of uh, native Christian and native prophetic movements of the 19th century. And I think your listeners are going to find it to be an exciting way to, to look at the Book of Mormon. And the first thing you say that throws me off, or at least threw me off the first time you were talking about it, you say native prophetic movements. And I go, what are you talking about? Native Prophetic. Oh, yeah. So there's prophets among the American Indians in Joseph Smith's neighborhood? Indeed. Uh, in one not very far away, Handsome Lake, the Seneca prophet uh, is in the 
in the almost in the neighborhood of uh, just across the the, the Genesee River uh, from where uh, in western New York where the Smith family lived. Uh, and other significant Native prophets include Tenskatawa, uh, also known as the Shawnee prophet, who played a critical role along with his brother Tecumseh in the War of 1812. And earlier in the 1760s, the Delaware prophet Neolin, uh, who had associations with Pontiac and the, the uprisings at that time. So th these Native prophetic movements, we'll see, have a lot to do with the, the Book of Mormon and some of the some of the stories that are told in the Book of Mormon itself uh, echo and, and reflect uh, that 19th century, 18th and 19th century context of Mormonism. I don't I want mean, to get you, oh, excuse me. I don't want to get you off your outline, but first off, when you say handsome, like it's handsome, like good looking, right? That's right. Yes. Handsome, handsome lake. lake. And mm -hmm. is that also a real location? Is that a body of water in addition to the name of this Native American? Not to my knowledge. It's, it's, it's the name. Okay. So that was just a bit confusing to me at first, but handsome lake is the name of this prophet. And the second thing is, I don't know why, <clears throat> probably because I didn't live back in the early 19th century in New York, but for whatever reason, uh, I, I knew there were native Americans around, you know, but in my mind, I sort of had them hermetically sealed off from the American settlers. Like they never really had any contact with each other in my mind, but through talking with you, that idea is completely wrong. Correct? Uh, correct, indeed. Uh, you know, they, it was an assumption. In fact, I do remember uh, one of my uh, professors uh, had even suggested to me that Native people uh, wouldn't have interacted with Joseph, not likely they'd interacted with Joseph Smith at all. And so I didn't really, at the time I was doing my dissertation, look very closely at that. It was only later uh, that I started going into it in more depth. And particularly, I was actually researching my own ancestry. I, I'd grown up with these stories in my family of, of having uh, Lamanite ancestors uh, and wanted to try to put some names on, on, on these individuals and, and explore a little more deeply. So I, my mother is a genealogist and I I started asking her questions, asking my grandmother questions, and pretty soon uh, it led me to Western New York to uh, a, a Mohawk community called Tionondaroge, where Susanna Ferguson was born around uh, the late uh, uh, the late eighteenth uh, century, uh, and uh, as I started reading about this community. Uh, Tionandaroge, which was also known as Fort Hunter, uh, I kept coming running across all these stories that sounded eerily familiar to what I was reading in the Book of Mormon. And, uh, and then I remembered I picked up a copy of Laurie Taylor's dissertation on uh, telling stories of Mormons and Indians at one point and had never actually read it. So I went back and read it and it opened up my eyes quite significantly. Another one of my professors, Gary Witherspoon, uh, had, had criticized my dissertation for not taking Iroquois uh, traditions into account. So it, I, I kind of came around to this, this argument uh, by surprise, uh, not by intent. But what I'm going to argue today is that scholars recognize significant 19th century cultural and, and source influences on the Book of Mormon. These include the King James Bible, the Apocrypha that you talked about last week. Bible commentaries, the view of the Hebrews by Ethan Smith, 
Sermon Culture and Bill Davis's uh, new book along that topic, uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, Denominational Debates, the Smith Family Dynamics that Dan Vogel and uh, Robert Anderson have done so much work on, uh, newspapers, etc. have had uh, recognized as having had some influences on, on the text of the Book of Mormon. But insufficient attention has been devoted to indigenous cultures and their possible influences. Uh, and I think this is in part because the Book of Mormon gets so much wrong about the culture and ecology of ancient Native America. And so it's really easy to kind of dismiss that it doesn't know anything about 19th century America either. Uh, but what's wrong about ancient America is not necessarily incorrect within a 19th century context. And in fact, it is the things that are wrong about ancient America that connect it most strongly with uh, the neophytes of uh, 19th century America. And I'll define in a bit what me, I mean by neophytes. And, and right. I just want to jump in just for a split second, because you're hitting on that word neophyte. And I remember thinking this through in 1828 Webster's Dictionary, neophyte, um, maybe you should define that for us. And then I'll just add a kind of a thought in before you kind of take off. Yeah, well, yeah, neophyte in the 1828 Webster's Dictionary is defined uh, as a new convert or proselyte, a name given by early Christians to such heathens as had recently embraced the Christian faith and were considered as regenerated by baptism. Yeah. So it's basically a term for new converts. Uh, it's used in the 19th century to apply to native Christians uh, but it, it, not just Native Christians, it's also used to apply to followers of indigenous prophets, such as Handsome yeah. Lake and Tenskatawa and Neolin that I'd mentioned. Yeah, I, I've heard people try to make the connection, you know, Nephites in the Book of Mormon, and then Neophytes being these indigenous people who converted to Christianity. And some people have tried to draw that connection. I just wanted maybe your thoughts on just a really surface level kind of tangent issue before you guys jump into the, the real stuff. You don't really see Joseph Smith stealing that word and using it for Nephites, correct? Oh, I don't know. I'm not quite sure. There's a, it's a possibility, uh, but it is. You know, the reason I use it is because I because of the the similarity between Nephites and Neophytes, yeah. uh, and because as we'll see that the Neophytes are really a good model for the Nephites of the Book of Mormon. Yeah. And whether Joseph Smith intentionally, unintentionally did that, I have no idea. It, it uh, wouldn't but, be a first. I mean, you've got, I think it's, uh, is it Laban is the the property owner that the Smiths move back into their own house on their on their farm. And all of a sudden he becomes the bad guy in the Book of Mormon. And there's been some people who have said maybe there's a connection there. But anyway, I'm getting off track. You guys get back. Yeah, on we'll, the, we'll get into some names, some interesting similarities with names. Uh, and neophytes is just one of those. Cool. But, you know, I think most Mormon historians are quite unfamiliar with indigenous peoples, cultures, and especially their oral traditions. Uh, and oral traditions produce a bit of a challenge when you're working with them uh, because uh, they're not always written down. And uh, some of the ones we're going to talk about uh, were written down early. Some were written down later. Some of the details, uh, the, the most striking details uh, come from uh the more detailed accounts written later or the the earlier ones as well so it depending on which story you have to you have to be particularly careful when you're using oral tradition and so i think a lot of a lot of historians have not even bothered to look into it uh let alone uh, go in explore it in some depth but there are some intriguing connections between 
uh, the Book of Mormon and uh, indigenous oral traditions, as well as uh, written records of indigenous peoples in 19th century New York. And I want to start by talking about indigenous people's stories about Mormons. And that's what Lori Taylor's really excellent di uh, dissertation kind of focuses, focuses on, is the stories that uh, Iroquois and other indigenous peoples of, of New York and surrounding areas told about Mormons. And widespread versions of these oral traditions explain some similarities between the Code of Handsome Lake, a scripture, if you will, produced by that, that uh, Seneca prophet, and the Book of Mormon by positing a, a collaboration between neophyte followers of Handsome Lake and, and Joseph Smith in the fabrication of gold plates. So in essence, they're saying these, that uh, these followers of Handsome Lake I had worked together with the Smith family uh, as farmhands, uh, maybe even digging for treasure. And they uh, had shared some of their teachings with Joseph Smith. Uh, and in those, in there are various versions of these stories, but in the more elaborate ones, I, they actually assist Joseph Smith in the fabrication of a set of gold plates. Uh, kudos to Dan Vogel on that. Dan Vogel on that. I don't know if he's listed the, Native oral traditions as sources for uh, that debate he got in with Brent Metcalf on the show a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but uh, these native sources, they say they assisted Joseph Smith uh, in the fabrication of gold plates in inscribing them with their, their picture writing and the incorporation of indigenous stories into the Book of Mormon, uh, and then pretending, uh, helping Joseph Smith in his pretended discovery. Now, I'm not sure if all the details of those stories are actually accurate, but I started exploring them after reading Lori Taylor's uh, dissertation. Uh, and she, she argues that the, these stories were at least wide, became widespread in the 20th century uh, because of a man by the name of Wallace Madbear Anderson. He was, a, he was a Tuscarora medicine man who spread these tales far and wide as he traveled in the in the military and in uh, in in the merchant marines, uh, and became an activist uh, going across the, the United States and Canada. Uh, and uh, Lori uh, presents her argument in in this book, Essays on American Indian and Mormon History, which is uh, a book I have an article as well exploring some of my early ideas about these connections between Hanson Lake and Joseph Smith. But her argument is basically that, that Anderson at very least was a wide teller of these tales, maybe even an inventor of these tales. Uh, but I've found evidence that these stories dating back beyond the 1960s and 70s, when she has evidence of him telling the stories uh, to at least 1945, at which point they were already being described as a common tradition. For example, the historian C. Stanley Banks wrote in 1945, tradition has it that pro the prophet Joseph Smith in his authorship of the Book of Mormon was greatly influenced by a study of the beliefs of the Iroquois Indians of New York. Then a couple of years later, uh, the essayist Edmund Wilson wrote about a Mohawk convert to Mormonism. Philip Cook, who thought at first that Joseph Smith must have been influenced by Hanson Lake doctrine, Though through the Senecas of Western New York, 
But then he concluded that no white man at the time could have ever had access to their ceremonies or understood what was said if they did, uh, end quote. And now more recently, this, the religion scholar Peter Mans Manso has drawn from Laurie Taylor's research and made the bold uh, statement in his uh, book, uh, Oh, what is the name of that book? It's, uh, I'm blanking on the name. Anyway, he argues, uh, while the birth of Mormonism is often considered in relationship to other Second Great Awakening movements of the Burnt Over District, in fact, the similarities pale in comparison to all that Smith's religious visions had in common with those of Handsome Lake. Uh, that book was One Nation Under Gods. Uh, there's a Mormon title, uh, almost the same, but it, it's a different book. And so anyway, I, I'm these connect these stories suggest maybe that the idea was older. So I'm like, well, what sort of evidence do we have that there were even native people in Palmyra uh, or in uh, neighboring communities or, or back in New Hampshire or, or even Pennsylvania where the Smith family traveled? Well, I was surprised in investigating this that native people were far more present than I had ever expected. Uh, and uh, there's a critical nexus that would bring the Smith family and Native people together early on. And that critical nexus uh, was in the in, at Moore's Indian Charity School that would become uh, Dartmouth College, uh, where Hiram Smith, who's Joseph's older brother and tutor, attended uh, Moore's Charity School between 1811 and 1816. Uh, so he was a student alongside Native Americans uh, for several years. And, uh, you know, I've been able to identify eight different Native Americans who went to, to school with him. Uh, and one of those we'll focus on a little bit later because he shows up not just in New Hampshire uh, with the family there, but back in New York as, uh, after the family moves to New York as well. Uh, now, the when the... Smith family moves to the Palmyra area in New York. Uh, it's interesting to note that Palmyra included the old Seneca village of Ghanak Way. So this is a very important uh, Seneca village that, uh, that the Palmyra was basically built on top of. Uh, and the Seneca people didn't stop coming to Ghanak Way because settlers arrived. Uh, they continued uh, before, well, before the Smith family moved there, they would come in regularly to hunt and fish and to gather. Uh, and they would return while the Smith family was there. And for years after the Smith family had moved on, the Seneca would continue to uh, visit Ghanak Way. And there was also another uh, old Seneca village of Ganondagan. Uh, it was about a dozen miles away uh, and kind of uh, off to the, the east of uh, Hill Cumorah. Uh, and uh, the, these... Seneca villages were regularly visited uh, by uh, the Seneca people, even though their main residents at that time were on reservations over by the, the, uh, by the Genesee River. And uh, by the way, Professor Murphy, I'm not sure. really familiar with the geography over there. How far is the Genesee River from Palmyra? Oh, I'm not sure the exact number of miles, but... Uh, Less than less than a hundred. Okay. Uh, it, yeah, I mean, it's like the Rochester area uh, compared to the Palmyra area. If you ever flown in there, 
The uh, Google Maps says uh, it's an hour and 11 minute drive, 67.8 miles. Thank you for the help. <laughs> real, real coming yeah. through in the clutch. Yeah. So another area that, that the Smith family interacted with, with native people was actually one I uncovered by doing my family's genealogy. Uh, and that's the Smith brothers uh, dug for treasure along the Susque Susquehanna River in the vicinity of a community called Watego, uh, which been, has been anglicized as Otego, uh, where my Mohawk ancestor, uh, Susanna Ferguson Youngs, and other Native women who'd married white men lived. And this is one of the places where Joseph Smith was uh, looking for, for, for treasure as a treasure hunter. Uh, and in one of those accounts from uh, Dan Vogel's uh, uh, early Mormon documents, uh, describes a straggling Indian who led Joseph Smith uh, to a treasure site along the Susquehanna, where he appears to have imitated uh, the Iroquois white dog ceremony as part of his ritual magic. Now, the the white dog ceremony is a a, a long-standing uh, Seneca tradition, or Iroquois more generally tradition, that uh, involved the sacrifice of a white dog. Uh, and it was important in that sacrifice that the white dog not not have any blemishes or, or any colors except the white be a pure white dog. Uh, and a lot of the people that were interested in Hebraic uh, Indian uh, connections or connections between Hebrews and Indians kind of keyed on that as a as a reflection of Old Testament uh, animal sacrifices. Uh, so this was kind of a, a popular and important. Uh, element of Native practice. In fact, uh, not long before the Smith family moved to New York, uh, a white dog ceremony was uh, conducted in Rochester, uh, again, not far from uh, from Palmyra. Uh, and uh, the white dog ceremony was being revived in the early 19th century by Handsome Lake and other, and a Mohawk prophet as well. Uh, and uh, so it was in the news and attention. It was particularly of concern at Moore's Indian Charity School uh, which was the training ground for missionaries to go uh, work uh, among the Iroquois. Uh, so it was uh, interestingly in this treasure hunting, Joseph Smith uh, tries to use a white dog, not able to get a white dog, instead substitutes a, a, a white sheep. And when they didn't find any treasure, he had a handy excuse for uh, why, that, why it didn't work when he blamed that on the substitution of a sheep for a dog. Now, uh, there's an interesting person that I mentioned shows up both in uh, New Hampshire and in New York, and this is a Seneca man by the name of Jacob Jacobson. So I, he became a, when he returned to New York, he became a prominent native doctor and interpreter. Uh, and his grandmother was a woman, actually a white woman by the name of Mary Jemison, who was a famous captive. Uh, who chose to remain with the Seneca, even, th even though she was given the opportunity to return to, to live with settlers. And the publication of her, of her biography in Canandaigua, which is just south of uh, the Palmyra area, where the Smith family used to go to pay their uh, mortgage. Uh, her biography was published in Canandaigua in 1824. And according to the former BYU librarian, Rick Grunder, coincided with uh, Joseph's interest in storytelling about Indian characters around the same time that book was published. The White Dog Ceremony and several other parallels that I'm going to talk about in, in, in a bit 
are discussed in this biography of Mary Jemison. And that came out in 1844? 1824. 1824. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, as I investigated these, these uh, stories, I started realizing, hmm, there's a lot more to some connections with the possible connections to the Book of Mormon. So I developed this neophyte interpretive model to explain uh, what I was finding. And if to describe this model, basically my argument is, starts with the hard evidence. Say so on the on the hard evidence side, the DNA research that that I did 20 years ago, uh, as well as archaeological, ecological, and cultural evidence, have soundly refuted all ancient American settings that have been proposed for the Book of Mormon, especially those in Mesoamerica and the Heartland. And I don't have time to go into the details of that here today, uh, but I encourage you to take a look at my research and writing that's available for free on my academia page and my social science research network page. And basically we do not find natives in ancient America uh, with uh, genetic connections to the, to the Middle East. We don't find natives in ancient America raising European crops, things like wheat, barley, oat, flax, et cetera, or livestock, things like horse, cattle, oxen, sheep, goats, et cetera. Uh, or using uh, European technologies, things like plows, wheels, steel, brass, glass, silk, linen, etc., all of which are mentioned in the Book of Mormon. Or most importantly, we don't find them worshiping Jesus. Uh, and so we have all these anachronisms uh, that show that the Book of Mormon account is out of time uh, with what's happening in ancient America. Well, these anachronisms are not out of time in the 19th century. In fact, many native neophytes did all of those things uh, and were commonplace in 19th century United States of America, or it's more particularly in Western New York. And in fact, Christian missionaries considered the adoption of European technology, crops, and livestock as a necessary part of a civilizing process that accompanied evangelization. So in order to become Christian, Native people had to start raising wheat, had to start uh, using the plow, had to start raising uh, native uh, crops. Uh, and so this, this expectation was a, a criteria for being a neophyte, uh, was to uh, raise those European crops, as well as, of course, believe in Jesus. Right. By the way, um, Dr. Murphy, Bill Real and I have talked before a long time ago about how it seems that when Joseph Smith was coming up with the Book of Mormon, that he just stepped outside of his house or his cabin, looked around at his environment and sort of assumed that, well, there's cows here, there's horses here, there's pigs here, there's wheat here, and just sort of assumed that that's always the way it's been. And so they get incorporated into the Book of Mormon much earlier than they should be. They become anachronisms. But it sounds like what you're saying is he may have done a similar thing with the Native Americans in his environment, too. And seeing them uh, being converted by missionaries to worship Jesus and start doing these kind of technological things that you've mentioned were considered to be necessary for them to become civilized. And he may have just thought that that's sort of the way that's always been, too. And he writes it yeah. to the Book of Mormon. 
Well, I think it's kind of an ethnocentric or even racist assumption that was present in the 19th century is that you can't be civilized without all of these things. Mm -hmm. You can't be civilized without looking and acting and believing like Europeans. Uh, and so that kind of assumption, I think, underlies uh, uh, this, this missionary work, but it also underlies uh, Joseph Smith's uh, assumptions. Now, I think I, I could add, and I've written about this in, in some of my other work, about that in his treasure digging, he was most likely encountering these things as well, because Iroquois preferentially buried these items with the dead. Their logic being that uh, that uh, these were novel uh, and that people in, in the other world uh, would like to have these new new things. And so European trade goods were were preferentially buried with the dead for about 200 years before Joseph Smith came along and started digging for treasure. Uh, and that's it, that 200 years is pretty important when we're talking about neophyte communities, is that this connection between Native America and Christianity was, was not a new thing in the 1820s, uh, but it had been occurring for two centuries. Uh, and so you're talking about multi, multi-generations of native Christians by the time Joseph Smith is around. Uh, and not, not just native Christians, but the incorporation of plows and uh, cattle and horses into their economy, uh, into their livelihood. And so it was very much a part of what Joseph Smith would have encountered for sure. Yeah. And Dr. Murphy, when you start giving us this background of what's going on in Joseph Smith's immediate environment, it makes me start looking at stories in the Book of Mormon. Mm -hmm. differently like uh the the white nephites who go and preach the gospel to the lamanites in order to uh christianize them and civilize them very famous stories with ammon and aaron four sons of mosiah going out there to the lamanites and preaching the gospel and having one degree of success or another yeah definitely and in fact you know like you say that moore's indian charity school was a training ground for those missionaries and that's where hiram had gone to school uh, one of the one of the similarities that really caught my attention early on uh, was the similarity between the the story of the great peace in Iroquois oral tradition uh, and the great peace in the Book of Mormon. And this is a topic that I've written about in 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 this book, Essays on American Indian and Mormon History, uh, for those that, that would be interested in this. But these oral traditions in among the Iroquois tell of a, of a peacemaker who brought warring nations together to form the Haudenosaunee or the Iroquois Confederacy and initiate an era of great peace and equality among the five nations. The five nations that would make up the Iroquois are the Mohawk, the Oneida, the Onondaga, the Cayuga, and the Seneca. And then later the Tuscarora would join them uh, in the 17th century when they were driven out of North Carolina. Can I mention a couple of things right now? I'm sorry. Sure. But it's interesting, the names of the tribes, because Oneida, in addition to being a Native American tribe in Joseph Smith's area, also gets uh, mentioned in the Book of Mormon. Indeed. Indeed. And we're going to get to that. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry if I got you That's out okay. of it. That's okay. That's okay. And, 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 and Onondagas, Onondaga or Onondaga. How, do you, how would you pronounce the name of the tribe? Onondaga. Onondaga. And then we get Onondagas, I think it is, mentioned in the Zelf story. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so he's using these these 
common names are, are around uh, his territory. And the, the Oneida or keep, but the Oneida are basically the prototype of a neophyte. Uh, they are the ideal neophyte community in 19th century America. And these neophyte versions of Iroquois tradition identify the peacemaker as the same messenger who crossed the saltwater to bring a message of peace to the ancient Near East, where his message was rejected and he was killed. That, that killing was given a lot of emphasis in, in the native versions of these stories. Uh, that peacemaker returned back across the saltwater to Turtle Island or North America and told the story of his murder. And when he told the story, he showed the wounds in his hands and feet and side as evidence of the atrocity. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like third Nephi 11 to me. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Where, where Jesus shows up and he says, I mean, I just got killed and um, it was a bad time, but I'm coming here to talk to you guys. And the very first thing is everybody come forward one by one, right? Mm -hmm. Feel the prints of the nails in my hands and in my feet so that you can know that I am the peacemaker. Uh, excuse me. It says that I am the savior. Yeah, and that's a common motif in these Iroquois traditions. It's a common motif in uh, the Book of Mormon. Uh, and uh, the Book of Mormon basically echoes and alludes the same events in that third Nephi account. Uh, you also get not just the showing of the wounds, you get the era of great peace and equality, uh, his, his ministry, his murder, etc. Right after, and just for those of uh, the audience who don't know, like maybe one, but uh, right, right after third Nephi and Jesus leaves, then we get fourth Nephi where we find out that Jesus has now give given such great teachings that he's ushered in 200 years of peace among the Nephites and the Lamanites. Yeah. yeah this is, this story is called the great peace in, in Iroquois tradition. So I, uh, very, very similar. But of course, the stories aren't identical. The Book of Mormon leaves out the prominent role played by the mother of nations. It leaves out matrilineal clans. And interestingly, it also leaves out a council of 50. What? It left it out? Yeah, it left out a council of 50 sachems. Uh, and uh, female land ownership and the importance that those played in establishing the peace. So the Native and, Americans had a, a tradition about a council of 50? Indeed, that was the leadership of the Iroquois Confederacy, a yeah. council of 50 sachems. Well, it may not be in the Book of Mormon, but I think Joseph Smith came up with that idea maybe, I don't know, within a year before he passed away in 1844. And he named an Oneida man by the name of Louis Dana to the, uh, or actually I think it might have been Brigham Young who put Louis Dana in the Council of 50. Oh. But uh, there was an Oneida man in the Council of 50 as well, uh, a convert to the church. Uh, and so we, we've got the basic big overview of the, of the Book of Mormon sends, seems to be a riff on uh, a very important uh, and classical uh, Iroquois oral tradition. And, you know, when, when you say it that way, it only makes sense to me that if Joseph Smith is trying to write a history of the American Indians, which really is what the Book of Mormon is, it's kind of like an origin story, which everybody pretty much agreed was the origin from Israel a long time ago. Um, but why not look at the traditions and legends that they had and incorporate them? 
Christ. Yeah, and notice how when you read the Book of Mormon, it really emphasizes the manifestation of Jesus, right? That, that Jesus manifests himself unto all nations. Yeah. That is a theme that's recurrent throughout the book uh, and is, you know, a reflection of these manifestations of Jesus to, uh, to the Iroquois, to, or at least to the neophyte Iroquois. Uh, and it's important to emphasize that these these are new traditions. If you go back to the earliest records of the Christian missionaries, the in the case of the Mohawk Valley, for example, they're telling the missionaries, we've never heard of this character, Jesus. Uh, and uh, why are you coming to tell us about him when you're the ones who killed him? <laughs> and I, you know, so in the earliest missionary traditions, they're unaware of Jesus, yet this tradition develops over that 200-year period uh, and gets incorporated into native traditions. But in the native traditions, it's the peacemaker who goes over to the old world and is the equivalent of Jesus, rather than Jesus coming coming here. So those are important differences, but the, the Book of Mormon kind of gives it a more of a Christian emphasis. Now, Oneida, that we've mentioned a couple of times, uh, it's spelled O-N-I-D-A-H in current LDS editions, uh, is one of this, but, but spelled by the Oneida people as O-N-E-I-D-A, is one of the six nations of the Haudenosaunee or Iroquois, and it, the only clearly identifiable indigenous community mentioned in the Book of Mormon. It's mentioned in Alma 32 and 47. And though Oneida were the most prominent and the well-known of neophyte communities in 19th century upstate New York. And in the 1820s, they were destitute and poor due to the loss of land in spite of their alliance with the Americans during the Revolutionary War. And so if, if the Smith family or their, their uh, friends and, and relatives encountered the Oneida, it was most likely going up and down the uh, Erie Canal, where the community and the the Stockbridge Hill were visible from uh, the canal, and they could see the poverty of the Oneida people in that region. Well, the first reference uh, to Oneida in Alma 32:24 refers to a hill where Alma, Alma was teaching and speaking to a great multitude of Zoramites who were dissenters from the Nephites. And Alma 32:15 refers to the Zoramites at Oneida as compelled to be humble because of their exceeding poverty. And he encourages them to exercise faith, to treat the word as a seed planted in your heart. And he encourages them to search the scriptures, to believe what they, what they teach about the Son of God. And the poor of the Zoramites who'd gathered at Oneida would then eventually unite with the people of Ammon, about whom I have a little bit to say later. Uh, the second and third references to Oneida define the term to mean a place of arms, and describe it as a gathering place for Lamanites who refuse to take up arms against the Nephites. Uh, place of arms is much closer to actually the term or the term for the Mohawk, which is the people of the Flint. Uh, but the the term Oneida actually means people of the Standing Stone. Uh, so I think Joseph Smith might have confused the Mohawk and Oneida here. But regardless, the Oneida were a gathering place. Uh, for natives uh, who uh, also uh, refused to fight against uh, the Patriots or the the Bostons, as they called them in those days, uh, that uh, fostered the American Revolution. The Oneida would break with their Mohawk and Seneca relations 
and fight for the patriots in the American Revolutionary War. And this brings us to some specific individuals whose stories sound a lot like those in the Book of Mormon. Before you get there, Dr. Murphy, um, <clears throat> I'm looking at Alma chapter 32, which is very interesting in this regard about the poor people. I'm right. seeing it in verse four, where it talks about the hill Oneida. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, all those things. But before you go on, is there, you mentioned something about a flint. Yes. Is there anything in the Book of Mormon that likens a group of Lamanites to a flint? Oh, yes. Yeah. So that's the, something I write about also in, in, in another, in, in, in this book is uh, that, so there's a sibling rivalry also in the, the founding stories of the, the Iroquois Confederacy uh, between sapling and flint. Uh, that have many echoes in or similarities, at least with the Nephi and Laman story as well. And I uh, didn't put that in my outline because I had oh, too, I'm many sorry. Things, too many things, but I, and I've written about it elsewhere. So I'd encourage people to take a look at my written publications on that. But yeah, that is similar. And then there's a passage in the Book of Mormon that uh, that suggests that Laman got a dark skin like unto a flint because he was hardened in his heart like unto a flint. Uh, and so is that a reference to the, the Iroquois character Flint? I don't know, but it, it's, it's intriguing anyway. Because I know that you mentioned that the sapling and the flint, who are the, the twin brothers, they're twins, yeah. right? Yes. They, yes, they, they're very different. They're like at the ends of the spectrum, but in the Native American traditions, that's a, a, a manner of completeness and sort of working together to make a whole instead of always fighting, fighting, fighting like itchy and scratchy. Yeah. You know, the missionary accounts of those stories. So those stories evolve over time. And in the missionary versions, they get more reframed as kind of good and evil with uh, with Flint and Sapling being even more like God and Satan. Uh, and uh, in in, in the the older versions of the stories, uh, they're not quite so stridently opposed to each other, but are more complementary, supporting of each other. And that's another way to read the Laman and Nephi story, because in the Book of Mormon, you know, it's like Nephi's always good and Laman's always evil. But the Book of Mormon then later complicates things when some Nephites get more righteous than the Lamanites. But, uh, you know, you interesting play uh, there at work. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. So sorry for that detour. All right. Please proceed. Well, if we start with Oneida like we've done, and then we start looking at some of the characters in the Book of Mormon that are associated uh, directly or indirectly with the Oneida, I, we start to see a lot of other similarities. Amalekiah, who in the Book of Mormon is a Nephite dissenter who employed intrigue murder and deception near Oneida uh, to become a king of the Lamanites and ultimately marry a Lamanite queen. Uh, he then has a brother by the name of Amaron who took his place after an untimely death and would lead the Lamanites allied with Nephite dissenters called kingmen uh, to do battle against Nephite freemen. And so you get this battle that even when I was an eight-year-old reading this thing sounded to me an awful lot like the American Revolutionary War when you've got free men against kingmen. Uh, and, you know, these characters actually resemble uh, historical individuals. Amalekiah, the Lamanite queen, and Amaron, 
bear a striking resemblance to actual historical figures, Sir William Johnson, Molly Brandt, and Joseph Brandt, uh, who were key players in Iroquois politics related to the American Revolution. Uh, Amalekia appears to echo uh, Sir William Johnson, who was an Irishman and a trader who would become New York's superintendent of Indian affairs, a colonel of the Six Nations, a knighted war hero, and induction as a Mohawk leader in the Council of 50 Sachems, leading the Iroquois Confederacy. Uh, so in essence, you've got this settler who becomes a native leader. Uh, king is the term that, that, you know, that the settlers would use. I would use the term sachem, which is a more, more accurate description because the system was actually more democratic than, uh, than uh, monarchical. But so that's kind of a misunderstanding on, on Joseph Smith's part to call Lamanites kings. But uh, Amalekia appears to echo this Sir William Johnson. Johnson married a leading Mohawk matron by the name of Molly Brandt, uh, a, the so-called uh, Lamanite uh, queen. Her brother, Joseph, would take over the military leadership of the Mohawk and, the Seneca, and Seneca warriors fighting for the British after Sir William's untimely, untimely death during the events leading up to the revolution. And so you have not only... The connection to the Oneida, you have these these interlocked characters with details corresponding with uh, what's happening in both the Book of Mormon and in the American Revolutionary War. And interestingly, Joseph Brandt uh, was a famous alumnus of Moore's Indian Charity School. Uh, and all of these uh, individuals had significant interactions with Moore's Indian Charity School. So we start to see this triumvirate of leadership uh, on, of the Lamanites that looks like uh, these communities of Mohawks uh, near the Oneida nation uh, and part of the Iroquois Confederacy. And if we kind of stretch out from then from the Oneida and Mohawk setting uh, to look a little bit more broadly, we start seeing similarities with the people of Ammon. The people of Ammon in the Book of Mormon were known initially as the people of anti-Nephi-Lehi, and they bear a striking resemblance to seven Algonquian nations from New England who would gather at Oneida and also support the Boston Patriots in the Revolutionary War. Intriguingly, in the Book of Mormon, you have seven nations of Lamanites, just like these seven Algonquian nations, uh, who convert and come together to form the people of anti-Nephi-Lehi uh, and, again, gather at Oneida. I. Uh, the, at Oneida, the, this, these communities uh, before and, and after the, the, the Revolutionary War would form a community known as Brothertown. There would be another community they'd form nearby called uh, New Stockbridge uh, as well, and that had connections to Stockbridge in Massachusetts. That I don't have time to go into with that one. But in Book of Mormon terms, these uh, nations of anti-Nephi-Lehi and, and later people of Ammon become a very industrious people, okay? In other words, they adopted those European plants, technology, uh, and uh, animals, raising livestock. Uh, so they stopped being uh, this stereotypical Lamanite uh, who's off wandering in the wilderness hunting for animals uh, and instead become an industrious people 
I, who look an awful lot like uh, Europeans of the 19th century. Uh, and so the, those Brotherton communities, fundamental part of their, uh, their transformation uh, was not just to become Christian, but to take up the plow and raise European grains and livestock. And correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't it the people of Ammon, <clears throat> first the anti-Nephi-Lehites, they are Lamanites, they're Native Americans in the right. Book of Mormon, who then ally with the Nephites mm -hmm. against the other Lamanites, and right. the Nephites give them their own land to settle on, and then they get invaded by the Lamanites. And then there's this really striking story in the Book of Mormon where the Lamanites, instead of fighting back against their brothers who are attacking and killing them, they they buried their weapons of war, I believe. Mm -hmm. And it's just really hard to dig them up fast enough. No, seriously. They buried their weapons of war and then they just sort of prostrate themselves in front of the attackers who start killing them and then start having remorse for just laying waste to them when they're not even fighting back. Yeah, and that, that story appears to be a, a riff on another important element in uh, Iroquois traditions about the Revolutionary War. Uh, so what, very important part of that bearing the weapons of war was a symbolic uh, action that started with the creation of the Great Peace uh, and then would be reenacted ceremonially uh, every time the the council of 50 would get together uh, they would reenact this burial uh, of weapons of war as a statement of peace uh, and so uh, that that again that iconography of uh, Iroquois communities is reflected in the the Mormon narrative so you get the bearing of the weapons of war you also get uh, that story you're mentioning where uh, the, the the sons of Helaman escape relatively unharmed in their conflicts. Uh, and those are kind of appear to me to be echoes of conflicts between the Seneca Mohawk on one side and the Oneida and the Brotherton people uh, on the other side happening at Oriskany, which is not far from Oneida. Uh, and uh, basically what you have is that the Seneca and Mohawk warriors under Joseph Brandt's leadership, that Ameren-like character, uh, they basically shoot over the heads of uh, their, basically their brothers in arms uh, because they're part of the same confederacy, uh, but they don't want to kill them. Uh, so they said, this is a, this is a battle between uh, the, 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 the British and the, and the Bostons, and and they they said let's not kill each other over it. So these were actual thing things that happened in that those revolutionary conflict. A couple of other things that happened in those that revolutionary war conflict that appear in the Book of Mormon is uh, when the people of Brothertown, along with the people of Oneida, famously helped feed the armies of the freemen, and you see a similar uh, story appearing in the Book of Mormon. You also have the slaughter of the people of Ant of anti-Nephi-Lehi where they're laying on the ground and praying uh, and they get killed anyway. Uh, that echoes the massacre of neophyte Delaware and Mohicans when they sang and prayed at Naudenhutten uh, in 1782 as part of uh, the Revolutionary War. So you start getting basically these Book of Mormon stories reshaping, exaggerating in some cases, I uh, 
reframing in a different moral context uh, the struggles uh, that the Iroquois had in uh, the Revolutionary War. Now, one of the most interesting uh, characters to come out of this is a Mohegan man by the name of Samson Oakham, who he, along with people like uh, Samuel Ashbow, David Fowler, Joseph Johnson, and others, uh, mostly who were alumni of Moore's Indian Charity School, they led the gathering of those Algonquian neophytes at Oneida. And so Samson was the first and foremost, foremost, most famous of all the students who had to attend Moore's Indian Charity School that was led by Eliezer Wheelock. And for those who may have joined later, that's where Hiram Smith uh, went to school. I didn't hear that in the earlier part. So you've basically got the most famous alumnus of uh, Moore's Indian Charity School, where Hiram was attending school, uh, was a man by the name of Samson Oakham, who was uh, in the 1810s and 1820s traveling around Western York and New England, uh, preaching to white people as well as natives. Is he preaching Christianity? Indeed, pre preaching Christianity. Uh, and in his his diary, uh, which we actually have, uh, we can actually, it's like being able to read Samuel the Lamanite's diary uh, in these collected works in, edited interestingly by Joanna Brooks. Uh, and I, in those, his reception is actually a little bit better than portrayed in the Book of Mormon and portrayed in the Book of Mormon. He's shot out on a wall and driven out. He was actually received much more hospitably uh, in Western New York, according to his accounts. So you're seeing a connection between Samson and what was his last name? Oakham. Samson Oakham and Samuel the Lamanite in the Book of Mormon, who's the famous counter example in the Book of Mormon of a Lamanite, a specifically named Lamanite. Right. Coming to the Nephites, who are now more wicked than the Lamanites, and preaching the gospel to them and being rejected. Yeah. Yeah. And so you basically have a prototype for a, a significant Book of Mormon character in Samson Oakham. Oh. And so I started, once I started recognizing these, I, I started looking back, are there other Book of Mormon characters that might uh, be reflections of uh, additional people in the 18th and 19th century? Uh, and so I'll mention a few here uh, before we uh, go in to take some calls. Uh, and there's a prototype for King Noah. King Noah in the Book of Mormon uh, is this uh, Nephite king. Uh, who resembles in many respects uh, Mordecai Noah, who was a Jewish advocate of Hebraic origins of American Indians, who wrote under the pen name Muley Muluk, another familiar name, and attempted to create a Jewish or Indian city of refuge on Grand Island in Niagara, in the Niagara River, which incidentally is across from the Tonawanda Seneca and the Tuscarora Reservations. Noah had announced his purchase of Grand Island on September 15, 1824, dressed in a theatrical costume of King Richard III, uh, and his ambitious plans were covered extensively in Smith's local newspapers like the Wayne Sentinel and the Palmyra Herald, which caricatured him as, quote, an opulent Jew and Sachem Noah. And End Sachem? Sachem, Noah. yeah. And that was a term that uh, that was translated as keen by the by, by the European uh, settlers. 
Oh, so like King Noah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, and I'm going to get up on it. Yeah, both of these King Noahs rule from a city recently acquired in war and nestled between two indigenous communities. It's Tonawanda and Tuscarora in the case of Noah, of Mordecai Noah, and Shilam and Shimlon in the case of the Book of Mormon's King Noah. Hmm. And the both kings led ambitious building programs funded by taxes. Uh, Mordecai presented his tax as less than the biblical one-tenth, while the Book of Mormon uh, King Noah assessed the heavy tax of one-fifth of all uh, possessions. And what we see here is a, a, a common pattern when when these when the Book of Mormon stories differ uh, from the stories available in oral and written traditions, uh, they tend to exaggerate. Uh, and so we get this really heavy tax of one fifth for a smaller tax that was actually less than one tenth, uh, less than a tithe. Uh, and uh, in the Book of Mormon account, you also have Abinadi, uh, a prophet uh, who appears as a type and shadow of Christ, who lambasts that King Noah as an opulent Jew, warning him it was not enough to obey the law of Moses and threatening a brutal destruction. Uh, and then you have King Noah sentencing Abinadi to death with a method of execution. Uh, Which we always get wrong. Yeah. Or at least I always got wrong, right? Because yeah. he scourged, uh, my my apologies, but he scourged with faggots. And yeah, the faggots and being the, the sticks yeah. that are uh, burning on one end, right? Or smoldering at least. Yes. Yeah. Well, in, in certainly in, in the case of uh, of the, the tortures that are described uh, of Seneca executions by Mary Jemison uh, in her book uh, on her captivity, uh, you have basically very similar method of execution occurring there and in the Book of Mormon. And again, uh, Mary Jemison was the grandmother of Hiram's classmate, Jacob Jemison, uh, at Moore's Charity School. Professor Murphy, could you describe what that method of execution is? Because the funny thing is, is that I think that we read this, we are disassociated from the culture that it's mm -hmm. referencing. And so the natural thing that we tend to go to is uh, Abinadi's getting burned at a stake. Uh, well, there is there is a, a bit of a burning like that, but it's more uh, being captured and, and you you go through a gauntlet initially and, and you're beaten. That's what the sticks and stuff involve. And then uh, tied uh, tied down and, and tortured, basically, uh, before being burned to death. And uh, that was often a, a, a fate of a prisoner of war uh, of the Seneca. Uh, and, you know, it's their way of executing uh, prisoners of war. Was there anything involved in it where they would take sticks that were burning on one end and then apply them to the skin of the person they're torturing? I, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's like a much worse version of cigarette burns on somebody? Yeah, and it, you know, it was also a test of strength, you know, so uh, it was a chance for a warrior to show uh, his uh, his ability to resist crying out in pain and, uh, you know, d demonstrate his strength. So, uh, and sometimes doing that could, could lead to you surviving. Uh, and it was really the, the women who directed this. So the, the 
the clan mothers would determine the fate of the prisoner. In, in most cases, the prisoners would be adopted into families and I end up with a, actually not such a bad situation like that that Mary Jamison ended up in uh, that she preferred over going back to live with, with her family, uh, her, her white family. But uh, those clan mothers would choose your fate. And if, if, if they chose you to be adopted, often to replace the life of somebody who'd been lost in war, uh, then then you'd become basically a captive. Uh, and, but then a, a member of the family in the process, or uh, you could suffer the torture uh, and uh, death. So other, other similarities that I've come across that I want to give brief mention to, I can't go into a lot of detail of these, but at least get give the audience a taste. Uh, there's the Book of Mormon dynasty of the kings Mosiah the first, Benjamin, and Mosiah the second, that resembles in many details that of the Mohegan Uncas dynasty. These were prominent sachems of which bore the names of Benjamin and Isaiah Uncas. So you've got a King Benjamin uh, in uh, the Book of Mormon and a sachem Benjamin uh, among the Mohegans, uh, and uh, connected to an Isaiah Uncas in uh, among the Mohegans and a Mosiah, King Mosiah on either side of uh, of Benjamin. You said the Mohicans. Uh, the Mohegans. So the Mohegans and Mohegans yeah. are my not. Point, yeah, my point yeah, is just that the, the Mohegans, if you, if you take the first two letters of Mohegans and then put it on Isaiah, you essentially have Mosiah just about. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I yeah. that. I'd always Clever kind of girl. It a mixture of Moses and Isaiah. Yeah. Wow, good job. Mm. Okay, if you're gonna print if you're gonna publish on that, Professor, I hope you'll give proper attribution to Bill Real. <laughs> yeah. Please. That's I, a great it, idea, Bill. Yeah. And you I'm know listening. the Mohegan Mohicans and the Mohegans are not the same group, uh, despite James Fenimore Cooper's novel called The Last of the Mohicans, in which Uncas is a prominent character. So that was published in 1826, showing you how popular Uncas was at the time. Uh, and Oh, and, and one of our phone calls, you had you had mentioned to me that Uncas, I mean, everybody and their white dog knew the name <laughs> Uncas, just like we know Geronimo today or Sitting Bull. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was just as popular, you know, and widespread. In fact, in 1833, a monument was dedicated by President Andrew Jackson and his military officer, Henry Cass, who praised Uncas as the most faithful of the allies to the colonists. So he was definitely understood not as not as the rival, but as the ally to uh, the General Court of Connecticut. Uh, and three generations of Uncas's descendants, all by the name of Benjamin, Benjamin the first, Benjamin the second, Benjamin the third, they seized a regal leadership in violation of tribal tradition and maintained power through threats of violence, affinity with Christianity, even conversion to Christianity, and a strategic alliance with the General Court of Connecticut. Major Ben I, much like the Book of Mormon character, King Benjamin, saw serious war and much bloodshed, to use the Book of Mormon terms, fought with the strength of his own arm, and dealt with contentions among his own people. So sharing, again, a very similar biography. Uh, Benjamin Uncas II famously converted to Christianity uh, and became that the, the first uh, indigenous leader uh, to convert to Christianity 
kind of out of his own volition rather than at the instance of a, of a missionary. Uh, so very famous in colonial uh, stories. Now, Isaiah Uncas, who was not coincidentally an alumnus of Moore's Indian Charity School, like Mosiah II, was the last of a regal dynasty because of the Mohegan tribe urged by Samson Oakham refused to recognize a successor. And so you have this shift in the Mohegan society where you go from this king-like character of the Benjamins uh, to Isaiah to then uh, giving up any kingship. Well, kingships weren't recognized traditionally. They were kind of imposed upon the Mohegans by the, the colonists in Connecticut, and they refused to, to have a new king named uh, and instead insisted on uh, a more democratic uh, ruling process. Well, you have that same transition occurring in the Book of Mormon, where you have Mosiah refusing to name a successor, and instead you go from a monarchy to a reign of judges that then characterize subsequent elements of the Book of Mormon. So you have these same parts of the story in the Book of Mormon reflecting kind of a cleaned up version of what actually happened with the Mohegans, making King Benjamin to be this great Christian character, when actually the, the real Benjamin Uncas was a bit of a, of a, a compromised character, let's put it that way. Uh, so that kind of gives you another dynasty of, of, of similarities in the Book of Mormon. And uh, I do want to mention one more. Uh, and this is the conversion of King Lamoni in Alma 18 to 24 that echoes the visionary experiences of the Seneca prophet and Sachem Handsome Lake in 1799. After hearing the teachings of respective missionaries, Ammon uh, in the case of the Book of Mormon and Henry Simmons in the case of Handsome Lake, both Lamoni and Handsome Lake fall to the ground in apparent death and awake from visions to tell stories of conversations with angels confession, repentance, forgiveness. Look at these details. Visitations by Jesus, heaven and hell, a plan of redemption from torment and suffering. Incredibly similar details in the stories. And both Lamoni and Handsome Lake use the term great spirit, which was a novel neophyte term that didn't exist in ancient America, but was commonplace in 19th century America. You also have other characters, just like these other stories, there's interlocked characters. It's not just one character that looks like the Book of Mormon character. You have a woman, Abish, in the Book of Mormon, or Yewanot, a handsome Lake's daughter, uh, play key roles in summoning gatherers around the seemingly dead visionaries. You also have a brother, corn planter for Handsome Lake and anti-Nephi-Lehi for Lamoni, that takes on increasingly important leadership roles as a sachem and king after the vision. Uh, and so, again, very interlocked characters with uh, biographical details uh, that are surprisingly similar. There's even ceremonial feasts in both sets of stories uh, that follow the visionary accounts, although there are some differences here. Lamoni misses the one hosted by his father, while Handsome Lake's vision endorses a strawberry festival and a sacrifice of a white dog. Uh, a ceremonial feast uh, after his vision. Uh, and then the in the vision uh, that Handsome Lake has, that vision is led by three messengers uh, who serve as his guide. 
these three messengers, many scholars have likened to the three Nephites, uh, Book Mormon and LDS lore. So I do have some other, those are some of the key people. I've got some other elements of the story that if we've got the time, I could go into a little bit about some divination practices and apocalyptic prophecies. Do we have time to, to go into that? We are in this to one hour and 12 minutes. So, um, yeah, do you think uh, you could cover that in eight minutes or so? Because I think it's really interesting about the seers to practice that you mentioned to me on the phone and that you publish about. Yeah, so basically J Joseph Smith's divination practices uh, appear to me to imitate those of indigenous prophets. Handsome Lake would bury his head under a blanket to exclude light in his divination and revelatory practices. Joseph Smith would stick his face into a hat uh, for the same purpose, staring into a, a, a stone, often a Native American artifact. Uh, and so Joseph Smith and his contemporaries used exotic stones and native artifacts, things like gorgets and spindle whorls, as seer stones, imitating uh, the practices of native prophets. Now, importantly, it wasn't just they were imitating them, they were getting something that is really important for religious innovation, and that's progressive revelation this coming from the dreams and visions of the native prophets. Uh, Mormonism makes its big difference with the rest of Christianity by the fact that they're still led by prophets who have continuing revelation. Well, that was a common motif associated with native prophetic movements, and the native prophetic followers were very particular to make sure that the Christian missionaries knew that their source of revelation uh, came from the same source, the same divine source uh, as the Bible itself, and was equivalent to or, or more important than the Bible. Uh, and uh, so you have progressive revelation, having a, na a native counterpart. Uh, you also have uh, the treatment of the seer stones. Uh, Joseph Smith, like Tenskatawa, would describe a fiery and luminescent qualities of his seer stones, and both of them would wrap their seer stones in leather. Uh, and intriguingly, uh, James Adair, writing in 1775, equated gorgets uh, that were used as seer stones with breastplates and the biblical Urim and Thummim. You heard that term? Yes. Now, this is really fascinating because I think you just mentioned that to me earlier today. I could be wrong. We've talked so often. But <laughs> but the typical uh, LDS understanding is that Joseph Smith had a seer stone that in 1833, I think it was, William W. Phelps was the first person that we know of to apply the biblical appellation of Urim and Thummim to the seer stone. But what you're suggesting is that there is an earlier antecedent that's a, a possibility for the use of this term. Yeah, in fact, there are several of them. So I, uh, James Adair writes about them in 1775, Elias Bodinet in 1816, and Ethan Smith in his view of the Hebrews in 1825. And they're all talking about the Urim and Thummim. The Urim and Thummim and its association with these native seer stones and uh, and gorgets and breastplates. You get those terms using being interlocked. So basically, uh, you've got native prophets using a, or Joseph Smith using a similar process to that that native prophets are using 
to get nothing more than progressive revelation. Uh, and uh, if you follow the lives of these native prophets, you also see some similarities in the production of scripture. The Delaware prophet Neolin inscribed an account of his visions on a, get this, a hieroglyphic chart, often called an indigenous Bible or a great book, uh, copies of which he sold to his followers. Uh, and uh, so you have this association of hieroglyphs, uh, new scripture, uh, with the progressive revelations and the visions and dreams of these prophets. Uh, that's reflected in the Joseph Smith story, as well as in this case, the Delaware prophet Neolin. Uh, Handsome Lake would also uh, produce an alternative scripture called the Code of Handsome Lake, but that wouldn't be published in written form until after the Book of Mormon. It was in an oral form being transmitted in an oral form during the 1820s. So basically what you've got is missionaries and neophyte communities were already associating seer stones with ermine thummim, progressive revelation, and new scriptures long before the translation of the Book of Mormon. Wow. That was uh, an absolutely new insight as far as I was concerned. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was kind of shocking to me when I came across it as well. I, I was just going to say, you guys, are, you, you made a ton of connections and... I'm seeing tons of comments from people saying like, Hey, this is a fascinating episode. I'm learning so much, so much cool new stuff. I, I would say like, as I'm looking at it, it seems like there's this strong correspondence. Like when you have three or four things in a story that match up, at least it deserves a second look. And the only thing I would add would be to the, to the audience, maybe consider, you know, the apologists are always pointing at Nahum and NHM as being this <laughs> right. huge connection and I would simply ask if uh, Professor Murphy has shown evidence that should at least be considered as stronger than that. And if so, maybe the passes we give to apologetics on very weak connections that they make. Yeah, well, yeah. that's quite coincidental that you should bring up Nahum since today earlier when we were talking on the phone. By the way, Professor Murphy, I didn't tell Bill about that conversation. No, no, no. no. I, I didn't this have any totally prep for coincidental. that. Yeah. Yeah, because you were telling me about some of these things, and then you had mentioned Professor Murphy. Well, uh, it's probably a little bit better than Nahum, isn't it? Yeah, that, that's <laughs> right. my point. Is what I'm listening to sounds yes. better than Nahum. Yeah, and you know, if they found the diary of Samuel the Lamanite at Nahum, or, or I mean, of Lehi, anyway, right? Then maybe, maybe then we've got some comparable connections. I think it's actually far stronger than the Nahum association. I in in incredible detail and. Not just do you have a, a name that's similar. Uh, we've got several names that are similar uh, and they're interconnected with each other. Uh, and and they can be in, in some cases we can we can put the stories right in the hands of Joseph Smith. He used to go pick up the newspapers for his father uh, that had the stories of Mordecai Noah. Uh, and so we know that he that he, he would have been familiar with them. Uh, so, you know, there are some really strong ways to make these connections. One last thing I do want to, one component of the story I want to share before we go to calls is kind of the big trajectory of the Book of Mormon. Uh, and you have the Book of Mormon prophesies of an apocalyptic destruction of the, of the Gentile nation that is presumably the United States. 
uh, that echo those of neophyte followers of indigenous prophets like Neil and Handsome Lake and Tenskatawa. Uh, and so basically the grand narrative of the Book of Mormon itself is a recasting of the teachings of these prophets that first originally with Neolin would be then uh, replicated in the teachings of Tenskatawa and, and, and some aspects as well in Handsome Lakes. Uh, and some of the key elements of these apocalyptic destructions that are similar between the teachings of the prophets, the native prophets, and the Book of Mormon include shared conceptions of a pan-Indian unity reflected in the Book of Mormon in the Lamanite label and in the term Indian uh, in, in the colonial context. Because uh, that term was not something that Native people used to refer to themselves uh, before the colonists came along. You also have an anticipation of an Indian prophet. In the Book of Mormon, there's the reference in 2 Nephi 3.24 uh, to one mighty among them that Orson Pratt, in his 1879 footnotes, identifies as an Indian prophet. It now, actually, hang on a second, because this was really mind-blowing to me. I've been yeah. waiting for you to get to this. 1879, we've got a passage in the Book of Mormon, which I have here and which I want to read, because when I read it, it really blew my mind, that Orson Pratt, who uh, is the, the fellow that versified the Book of Mormon for us in the 1879 version. Before that, there were no verses, but he also put a lot of footnotes in there. Mm -hmm. And I've never seen an 1879 copy of the Book of Mormon. And I was completely unaware that in this passage, it's Second Nephi chapter 3, verse 24, he puts a footnote that says, what is it? An Indian one, prophet? Yeah, one mighty among them as an Indian prophet. Yes, and here's what it says, leading into verse 24 from 23. Wherefore, because of this covenant, thou art blessed, for thy seed shall not be destroyed, for they shall... That's actually not it, Maven. That's from a different one. We'll get there in a second, though. No, it's none of those that I supplied. <laughs> I gave her like three three uh, oh, okay. uh, photos from my triple combination. Sorry about that for the confusion. But it talks about, for they shall hearken unto the words of the book. Now, verse 24, and there shall rise up one mighty among them who shall do much good, both in word and in deed, being an instrument in the hands of God with exceeding faith, to work mighty wonders and do that thing which is great in the sight of God unto the bringing to pass much restoration unto the house of Israel and unto the seed of thy brethren. Now, typically, well, I would have, and I think most Mormons would read that and think Joseph Smith. But here we have in 1879, Orson Pratt putting a footnote and saying this is an Indian prophet. Right. And that was fairly common interpretation in the 19th century. It, it kind of goes out of favor later. Uh, it was removed from those footnotes, I think, in 1921. Uh, and uh, and kind of you'll still see it in fundamentalist uh, rhetoric today. There's still this expectation uh, and in some kind of the uh, some lore of uh, LDS as well. But one thing that's worth noting here is that this expectation uh, of a restoration is also present in the Book of Mormon uh, and in these native prophetic traditions. But the term restoration has been really misused by Latter-day Saints 
because they come, they borrow this idea of restoration from the Campbellites and think of it as a restoration of a church. That's not the way restoration is described in the Book of Mormon. It's a restoration of Hebraic uh, Indian Israel. It's restoring uh, Israel that gets such strong emphasis in the Book of Mormon, and that means restoring native leadership. And in fact, in the Book of Mormon, uh, it's the Gentiles are supposed to help Israel build a new Jerusalem in the last days. It's the native, the descendants of the Lamanites that are supposed to be uh, leading uh, this revolution, if you will, this apocalyptic destruction of the Gentiles. Uh, and only a small believing remnant of the Gentiles are going to survive. This is the narrative of these, uh, the prophet Neolin first, and then later Tenskatawa, uh, and there are elements of it in Handsome Lake's uh, teachings as well. Uh, and this is the kind of key narrative uh, underlying their teachings. Now, they had a role for some settlers that they expected to survive this apocalypse when they were going to destroy uh, most of the, the settlers. They needed allies. Uh, and so to keep that supply of weapons available... Uh, they they anticipated a a small remnant of the settlers that they're going to keep around because they're handy. They're good mm. trading partners. Yeah. Uh, and so that kind of gets played out in uh, apocalyptic kind of Christianized terms in the Book of Mormon. And can I just jump in here now? Because this is something yeah. I had forgotten this, but it was like 30 years ago when I'm looking at third Nephi, because strangely enough, Everybody knows that in 3rd Nephi, Jesus comes to visit the Nephites after freshly being crucified, shows up there to teach them. He starts off with the Sermon on the Mount, which he gives again in the three chapters 12, 13, and 14 of 3rd Nephi, I believe it is. And we know that we also quote from him in chapter 27, which is a long way beyond that, right? Yeah. Where he talks about this is my gospel and he gives the basics, the four, you know, uh, the elements, the faith and the repentance and the baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost. And this is my gospel. And also he talks about contention is a bad thing because it's of the devil. But it's fascinating to me. And it was back then, too, because I thought, why is it that other than maybe the story about the children going out and praying and being surrounded by all the angels who come down from heaven? We don't really talk about any of the teachings that Jesus gave to the Nephites. So around 30 years ago, I thought, that's kind of strange. Let me sort of try and read this and see what's going on. And I came up in my own scriptures. By the way, Maven, now would be the time. <laughs> is that one of the fascinating things, and I, I found out why we don't talk about it. And it's because what Jesus, and is that, is that uh, chapter 16? I don't even know. I'll go for my scriptures here. But what happens is that Jesus is talking to the Nephites in prophetic fashion, and he's telling them that the Lamanites, the descendants of the Lamanites, are going to go forward and destroy all of the unrepentant white settlers. Now, it lays out the idea that if, ever, if all the white settlers repent, then it'll be okay, but we know that's never going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. And so the ones who do repent get to join with the Lamanites, in not only building the temple, and you're right, the, the Lamanites are the ones that the Book of Mormon says will build the temple, the descendants of um, the Lamanites. But they're also going to destroy all of the white settlers. So let me go here because I actually did a scripture chain 
for this. And now let me focus on this, all right? And this isn't just mentioned once by Jesus. It's mentioned across at least three chapters, 3 Nephi 16, 20, and 21. And those are chapters. So here's the first one, if I can find it here. And I may need your help. Is that 16? Is that chapter 16? Yeah, uh, it it's not. It's not. Because chapter 16, in verses 18 through 20, and that's the one that's going to have 18 through 20 in the upper left-hand corner, Maven. So that might make sense. I tried to make photographs that were wide enough that they kept, they had in them, oh, the notation in the upper left as to the, the name of the book, 3rd Nephi, and then the chapters. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and read this. Uh, no, that's 21. It's going to be in the upper left-hand corner. That's the footnote. I'm just going to read. Uh, I'll take full responsibility for that. Chapter 16, verse 18 through 20. Thy watchman, I, I sure hope this is right. Okay, here it is. Yeah, you probably had it up there, Maven. I was looking in the wrong place. 35, chapter 16, and 12 through 15. Let me read it real quick. And I will show unto thee, this is Jesus speaking, O house of Israel, that the Gentiles shall not have power over you. But I will remember my covenant unto you, O house of Israel. Thank you so much. That was to Maven. And ye shall come into the knowledge of the fullness of my gospel. Okay. So now continuing with verse 13. But if the Gentiles will repent and return unto me, saith the Father, behold, they shall be numbered among my people, O house of Israel. So if the Gentiles repent and turn unto the Lord, they get numbered among the, the Israelites, but more specifically here, the Lamanites, who are Israelites, right? So it's sort of one and the same. And then 14, and I will not suffer my people who are of the house of Israel to go through among them and tread them down, saith the Father. And here comes the big but. But if they will not turn unto me and hearken unto my voice, I will suffer them. Yea, I will suffer my people, O house of Israel, that they shall go through among them and shall tread them down, and they shall be as salt that hath lost its savor, which is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of my people, O house of Israel. So then it goes to verse chapter 20, verse 16. In my scripture chain, you know, this is about the only scripture chain I ever made that I've actually used. <laughs> I mean, how many people have made scripture chains in their, their scriptures and never used them? But here, 2016, so four chapters later, he's going to hit the same theme again. Then shall ye, oh, that's perfect. It's up there on the screen. Then shall ye who are a remnant of the house of Jacob go forth among them, and ye shall be in the midst of them, who shall be many. And ye shall be among them as a lion among the beasts of the forest, and as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who, if he goeth through, both treadeth down, and teareth in pieces, and none can deliver. And Jesus isn't done talking about this. He goes on in verse our chapter 21. And that is going to be verses 11 and 12. I mean, this is all over yeah. Jesus's visit to the Nephites. And this is the last thing I'm going to be reading. But it was just amazing to me when I read this, and I started realizing why it is we never talked about this in church. Therefore, uh, this is 21, verse 11 and 12. Therefore, it shall come to pass, once again, Jesus speaking, that whosoever will not believe in my words, who am Jesus Christ. If you had any questions about who it was, he identifies it there. Which the Father shall cause him to bring forth unto the Gentiles. 
and shall give unto him power that he shall bring them forth unto the Gentiles. It shall be done even as Moses said, they shall be cut off from among my people who are of the covenant. So more specifically, this sounds like the Gentiles who don't get on board with Mormonism and the Book of Mormon. And then verse 12, and my people who are a remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles, yea, in the midst of them as a lion among the beasts of the forest, as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who if he goeth through both treadeth down and teareth in pieces and none can deliver. So this is the message. This is an absolute major theme of the resurrected Jesus in the Book of Mormon as to this apocalyptic idea which you told us, uh, Dr. Murphy, was prevalent among Native American prophets mm -hmm. in Joseph Smith's community. And here we have Jesus, a.k.a. the peacemaker, if I may, yeah. given the same kind of prophecies. And it does appear, and we don't have time to get into this right now, but it appears that Joseph Smith's goal in advancing Mormonism was to make those prophecies come to pass. And that's why, maybe part of the reason why, the first mission that he sends out four missionaries to is crazily enough a thousand miles away to go down and preach to the Lamanites down by the borders of the Lamanites, basically in Missouri. Yeah, and, and I think it's important to point out that on the way they, they made a stop that's also important. And they stopped at Cataragas, a Seneca reservation. Uh, and so they stopped with the Seneca. And then when they head uh, to to Missouri, what they focus on are the Delaware and the Shawnee. And so notice, and this is something Lori Taylor points out in her dissertation, is the similarity that they're going to see the followers of the Seneca prophet, Handsome Lake at Cataragas. And then they're going, uh, the, the Delaware and the Shawnee have been removed uh, west uh, to the west. And so they're going to see the Delaware and Shawnee uh, out uh, by Missouri. And so Lori points out that, you know, there's this targeting of native prophets uh, and prophetic movements and that, in fact, they may very well have been looking for an Indian prophet counterpart to Joseph Smith. And that would be a part, an important part of uh, Mormon lore. Well, it, to the end of the 19th century, when a lot of people thought Wavoka, uh, the, the Paiute prophet, uh, was that counterpart and was the return in 1890 of Joseph Smith. I mean, of uh, of Jesus uh, in 1890, uh, which coincidentally was when Joseph Smith would have been 85 years old. Which when he said that of, Jesus would come again. Right. Yeah. And so uh, there's there is a whole element that, of connection to those stories as well. And I'll mention one briefly that when I was doing research with Nahua Mormons in uh, in Mexico, uh, they were fond of pointing out these passages that that you've mentioned uh and so these are native more native fundamentalist Mormons, in fact, uh, and they're quite fond of pointing out where uh, the the Gentiles are going astray and will lead the church astray in the last days, uh, and that the the native people basically have to step up and lead the church. Yeah, and this was so uh, entrenched in Mormonism that as erudite and scholarly and knowledgeable a person as Orson Pratt, as late as 1879, is seeing this prophecy in the Book of Mormon. Of, the, of one mighty and strong coming forward to do all those things that we read about as being an Indian prophet. Yeah, one mighty among them is not the exact same as the one mighty and strong. So Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. One yeah. mighty among them who's doing all of these things. It's absolutely fascinating to me. I appreciate your coming on, sharing with us 
your knowledge, which is vast. And mine is not as great as yours. Mine's only half vast. Okay. You, you, you're certainly stronger in some areas. So, <laughs> Well, maybe Marvel Comics, but yeah. I'll give you that. So are we ready to take some phone calls? Yeah, Maven's going to handle that. I'm going to step away from the show, like I told you before. Um, but just a note, I mean, there's things where, you know, Dan Peterson and some of the other apologists point to Jewish feast in the Book of Mormon or Jewish holidays or with celebrations and things going on. The the evidence is so vague, right? It's like, oh, like maybe if I take that little piece there, it means this. Or And the reality is what we just got tonight was like a hundred things of these common uh, connections. And uh, I'm just amazed at how much weight we give to the obscure uh, mm -hmm. on one side and then all laid out in, in really nice format on the other and we dismiss it. I just, anyway, I'm going to step away, but um, tonight was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for, for being here, Bill. Okay, take it easy. Good we'll luck with the phone you. calls. Okay, bye, bye bye. Okay, now we get to say what we really think about Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Maven. Okay. Yes, we have a caller. His name is Brian. I'm just going to go ahead and pull him in. Hopefully, this works. This is okay. My oh, great. Thank you, Maven. Host. Here you go. Brian, is that you? Yep. How are you doing? I am fine. Thank you. Thank can you, you hear for me? calling in. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Yep. Yep. Okay, I can hear you good. Okay. Do you have a question for Dr. Murphy? Yeah. Um, all this is, is so fascinating just about how all the uh, kind of native uh, history around Joseph Smith's day influenced his thinking and writing the Book of Mormon. Um, you touched on it a little bit briefly, but I just wanted to ask kind of what was the reception of the Book of Mormon among the natives, like when uh, they sent out missionaries and particularly among the Christian natives or the prophetic um, uh, groups that you've mentioned, kind of how did they receive the Book of Mormon? A little disappointing from the Latter-day Saint perspective. <laughs> I, you know, it's, it, it's a great question. I, because that was, those early missions, I happened to stumble across a, a group of Campbellites in uh, Kirtland, Ohio, or in the vicinity of Kirtland, Ohio, and they get a lot of converts there. Uh, and that kind of changes the whole trajectory of Mormonism. But they didn't come back with a bunch of native converts. Uh, that, that didn't happen. Uh, and, you know, I, I've wondered a lot about why that was. Uh, I, I suspect I, that it's similar to a response that I still see from people like uh, Wallace Medbear Anderson I, that, that, that I mentioned early on, this Tuscarora activist who sees all of these similarities with the Book of Mormon and tells all these stories about it, but he doesn't become a Mormon because he's already got the native versions of it. And so they see Mormonism as a parallel religion for white people uh, and they have their own version of it. Uh, so they don't they don't need the missionaries. They already know this stuff. They already know the, the native prophets. They're already familiar with them. And, and so that has been kind of uh, what I, I, I'm speculating might have happened in the 19th century. Unfortunately, we don't have uh, good answers to that from a native perspective uh, in the 19th century. But we do have some good 20th century examples of that sort of response. Uh, and I would say that, you know, I, 
one article that 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 uh, RFM mentioned at the beginning is that the one I titled uh, "Views from Turtle Island: uh, Settler Colonialism and Indigenous Mormon Entanglements." That's available in the the uh, let's see, it's Palgrave Handbook of Global Mormonism. Uh, online, they're going to charge you thirty dollars if you email me. Uh, I can give you a free copy if, uh, but. Uh, online, they'll charge you $30 for it. But that article summarizes kind of the reception uh, over the, the past couple hundred years of indigenous people to to Mormonism. Uh, and not just in that those those first missions, but uh, a lot more uh, of the later material. And where should the, they, I'm sorry, where should they email you? Uh, you can email me uh, through through my work, tmurphy at edmunds.edu. T-M-U-R-P-H-Y at E-D-M-O-N-D-S dot E-D-U. You can also look at my academia profile, academia.edu. Look for my name there, and there's a message box there. You can send me a message uh, through academia. Okay, and let's keep it clean, folks. <laughs> okay. okay. There's somebody who's laughing. I don't know who that is. Dr. Murphy. Oh, yeah, that's my wife, Carrie, who doesn't want to be on camera. <laughs> oh, the one with the great sense of humor. Yes. Yeah. All right. Were there any other callers, Maven? That's it. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, let me let me summarize if I can then. I Book of Mor the Book of Mormon echoes and alludes to significant persons, places, events, and prophecies from Iroquois and Algonquian traditions. The Smith family was connected with indigenous people through Moore's Indian Charity School and treasure hunting activities. Surprisingly, these echoes and allusions not only reference important biographical details, specific settings, and interconnected characters, but often use actual names or something close to them of prominent individuals or ethnic groups. Uh, and these parallels are accompanied by important differences, which also appear to be patterned. The Book of Mormon echoes and its allusions exaggerate actual historical events, making them more miraculous, either more righteous or despotic, and more patriarchal and apocalyptic. The Book of Mormon narrative appears to me to use an allegorical technique that employs types and shadows that cut across time and space to highlight the message that Christ works miracles and manifests himself to all people according to their understanding. It also includes a dire warning echoing indigenous prophets of an impending apocalyptic destruction and the restoration of Hebraic Indians to their promised land. And it should be no surprise that indigenous people today say that Joseph Smith copied their traditions or collaborated with neophytes in the fabrication of the Book of Mormon. Period. End of conclusion. Well, you know, it's really interesting to me, and I know you pointed it out, this out in some of your other writings, but this whole idea, which is prominent in LDS scripture about God revealing things to people according to their own language and according to their own understanding. And what I'm understanding you're suggesting is that, yeah, that was talking maybe about the Native Americans and how they got these traditions and these prophets, which may have been according to their understanding, but the Book of Mormon is here to maybe improve on it a little bit. Yeah, or certainly to Christianize it. And that's where, you know, then the there's a version of that 
that story of the Handsome Lakes collaboration by Nicholas Vorman that Laurie Taylor writes about. And in it, he says basically that uh, the, the, the book, book of Mormon is intended for, for the whites, for the settlers, uh, and that the, the Code of Handsome Lake is the native version. Okay. And uh, the, he says, you know, Joseph Smith got some of that stuff right, uh, but he tended to make it too Christian. Is just a way a little bit too Christian, uh, and so you you know from from that native perspective, the Book of Mormon is a puts a Christianized veneer on these prophetic movements. Very very interesting. Well, I'm yeah. sorry we don't have more time, but you know what you have covered is incredible. It's opened absolutely new vistas to me personally, and I think it probably has to a lot of our audience. Thank you again so much for coming on the show tonight, Dr. Murphy. And we'll say thank you and thank you, Maven. Thank you, Bill, if you could hear me. Actually, we have someone that wants to call in. I don't know if she doesn't see the number and the banner below. Um, Miriam, was it? Do oh. No, well, absolutely. She wants to call in, but um, I'm never going to be able to recreate that great closing that I was just about <laughs> to finish. Just so everybody understands that. That's not happening again. I, I'm willing to take another call. Sure. Okay. It's been posted for her, so I will be watching the queue. You you can practice a new one, RFM. Oh my gosh. <laughs> practice a new one. I was almost and so good night, everybody, and thank you for watching. We'll be back next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. Yeah, you, and I'll see, you know, people that are interested in this, I am working on a book uh that that pulls all this stuff together. I've published a fair amount of it in uh, essays on American Indian and Mormon history that I mentioned earlier. That's probably the best place to go. That views of the he or views of from views from Turtle Island, uh, and some sun recent Sunstone presentations that are available online uh, on YouTube. Uh, those are uh, some good places to go if you want to get uh, more detail and more sources. Uh, and I am continuing to publish in this area. You are a force of nature and a force for good, I think. So, um, okay, I think we've got her. Okay, great, great. So, All right, I don't know. Johnny, this this is her, the her, uh, the caller, Johnny. I thought this was Miriam. Yeah, what so did I? But uh, Johnny, uh, we'll see what happens with Miriam while we talk to Johnny. Did you have yeah. a question, Johnny, for Doctor Murphy? Yeah, I just I just wanted to just ask Dr. Murphy straight if he believes in the Book of Mormon at all. Like, is it does he just believe it's fabricated a hundred percent? Does he have any? What's his opinion of the Book of Mormon as far as the the spiritual side of it? Well, I I see the the Book of Mormon as a product of the nineteenth century. Uh, and so I see it as a product of Joseph Smith's own wrestling uh, with with his conception of God, uh, and I see it as uh, as a reflection of, of of that experience, not of ancient America, not even of an of a an indigenous tradition, because he really culturally appropriates these stories, wrapping them into the Book of Mormon, uh, and. Uh, Carrie wanted me to make sure I mentioned culturally appropriate <laughs> that 
you know, he, he appropriates these stories out of context into what uh, Elise Boxer calls a settler colonial narrative. It's kind of, it's a, it's a biased narrative from, if you take it literally a Nephite perspective, uh, if you take it more allegorically, uh, like I do, then it, it's from a, a settler colonial uh, in, uh, perspective rather than an indigenous perspective. Uh, and I'm comfortable calling uh, calling the Book of Mormon scripture because an anthropologist, if somebody identifies something as scripture, then it's scripture. The same way, though, I'm yeah. I, I, I see the Code of Handsome Lake as scripture as well, or the Popol Wuj, or uh, uh, Black Elk Speaks. Uh, these are native texts uh, that are scripture, and I see. Uh, yeah. Neolin's hieroglyphic chart as scripture. Right. And so it strikes me that if we're looking at yeah, the book. Yeah, I, mean, I can see. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I can see, you know, the, I can see the stories, you know, um, simulating, you know, Native American stories. But as far as all the the gospel teachings of Christ and the in, in actual, you know, I mean, that's the main title of the Book of Mormon, Another Testament of Jesus Christ. What about just that, the fact that it does teach of Christ and his teachings? Well, it's the official title since 1981, but yes. Yeah. Well, I would agree with Nicholas Vorman that it's a little too Christianized. Yeah, I, th I think that there's actually more okay. depth to those Native stories if we go into them, especially when it comes to understanding things like good and evil, uh, balance and reciprocity, uh, the role of women in society that I think the indigenous stories are much richer uh, than, than the, the, the versions that appear in the book of Mormon uh, and that it's the, the patriarchy of the Bible and uh, of a lot of Christianity that gets in the way of, of seeing and understanding that. So I would call the book of Mormon too Christian. Thank you for your question, Johnny. I appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. I was just going to say, it strikes me that if we look at the Book of Mormon as being an attempt, at least in part, to take uh, Native American stories and traditions and imbue them with a patina or patina of Christianity, then really that's not that remarkable because that kind of thing had been going on for hundreds of years before the Book of Mormon mm -hmm. and for a long time after. Yeah, and that's where I, th I, th I do find it interesting to read uh, Sam Samokam in his own words, right? Uh, and because there you do have a native person, a Mohegan leader, wrestling with what Christianity means in his life and in connection with his own uh, traditions. Uh, and it's more nuanced, but sometimes he too uh, takes, accepts some of the, the Christian aspects that, that I find a little bit but harder for me to swallow. Very good. Maven, has Miriam joined us? She has not. So I'm going to go ahead and end and the uh, line here. Okay. I'm sorry about that, Miriam, if you're trying to get through. And apologies also to Donald, because I know that you were speed dialing like crazy trying to get on the show. And I'm sorry we weren't able to get you on. Maybe Is next that, time. Maybe next time. Maybe next time we'll have the donald on the show <laughs>, <laughs> i love these disembodied uh <laughs>, laughs that come out 
so anyway, thank you again. I'm not going to recap that whole outro, but thank you again, Dr. Murphy, for coming on the show. Thank you for everybody for listening. We appreciate you. We appreciate your sport, your sport and your support. And we'll see you next week on Mormonism Live.